Welcome to As We Eat, where we explore the intersection of food, family, history, and culture. We think there's something magical that happens when people get together and share food. Conversations seem to happen a little more naturally. We talk about our commonalities and our differences. We share stories, memories, and recipes. And we'll use food to take a journey that explores our human experience. Share some fun facts and some that aren't so fun. Talk about food history and how food connects and defines us. So if you've ever eaten, prepared, or shared food, then this podcast probably has something for you. Hi, Leigh. Hey, Kim. How are you? Oh, I'm fantastic. How are you? I am also fantastic. What are we talking about today? Well, you know, we're coming up on Mardi Gras, so I thought maybe it would be fun to talk about Epiphany and Lent and the celebrations that are in between those. Oui, madame, les et les bons temps brûlés. I don't know what you just said, but <laughs> sounds it's good. A, it's, a, it's a common term for Mardi Gras, especially for New Orleans, that basically means let the good times roll. Oh, indeed. Oh, epiphany and yeah. Lent. Epiphany and Lent. I'm a little bit of a heathen. My parents were vaguely hippie-ish and they wanted me to be able to pursue my own interests in, in religion. And so I really did grow up without a solid base in traditional, especially Christian rites and passages. So I've been really eager for today's episode to uncover and explore and learn myself. And I'm hoping that we will be able to help educate our audience. I actually was raised in a Lutheran family, so I do know a little bit about this. I mean, I know from my experience, mm -hmm. maybe we can talk through a little bit of history and then talk about how that has impacted or affected the festivals that we call Carnival. Yeah, sounds fabulous. Cool. Carnival runs between Twelfth Night, which is always January 6th, and that falls in between the Christmas holiday. It's actually part of the Twelve Nights of Christmas. The Twelve Nights of Christmas, as in on the first day of Christmas, my true love gave to me? That's exactly it. So the Twelfth Day of oh. Christmas is when the Magi, or the Three Kings, were supposed to have stopped at the manger to pay tribute to the baby Jesus. So from Twelfth Night to Ash Wednesday, Day, which is the beginning of Lent, is when Carnival typically runs. And the Tuesday previous to Ash Wednesday is actually Mardi Gras. Mardi Gras means Fat Tuesday. And Fat Tuesday is celebrated across the world, really. Other locations know it as Pancake Day, Shrove Tuesday. In Denmark and Norway, it's Fettetirstag. In Italy, Marteda Grasso in Fat Tuesday. Yeah. In Germany, it's a word that has, I don't know, every letter in <laughs> every syllable, every syllable possible. possible, but still means the same thing. Fat Tuesday. And once you go into Lent is that time when we start to see dietary restrictions and fasting and penitence and abstinence. So Fat Tuesday is the last hurrah before the Lenten season. The Lenten season lasts 47 days. So from Ash Wednesday to that 47th day, which is Easter Sunday, many of the churches had rules that you had to fast. When I told this to my husband, he's like, how did they live for 40 days with no food? <laughs> fair question. Right? It, it, it is a fair question. But 
to be clear, this wasn't a hunger strike. This was cutting <laughs> certain meals or certain ingredients out of your diet. Typically, it was meat. Many times it was butter, milk, those really rich ingredients that really were probably starting to run a little bit low during this time of winter. So not only did it have a religious underpinning, there probably was some practical underpinning to it as well in that when you're fasting for 47 days and you're cutting those types of things out of your diet, you're actually helping to conserve food through that time of winter. So back to January 6th, which again, King's Day or Twelfth Night, you start to see King's Cakes to appear in many cultures. And for most of the cultures that you see a king cake, most of them are around shape. They're decorated in some fashion and they almost all have some type of little figurine or a fava bean that are baked into the cake itself. And the custom of the king's cake goes back to the old world Europe, notably France and Spain. I thought I'd start by talking about one of them from Spain, which is called the Tortel de Rayas. There are different styles. It varies from region to region, which you would expect in any country, but most of them are cake-like. The one from Barcelona is a circular pastry. It's filled with marzipan cream, and then it has candied fruit and cherries and oranges in it, and it has two prizes. There's a king figurine, and there's a fava bean. If you get the king figurine, you get to wear the crown. If you get the fava bean, you get to pay for the cake. Oh, wow. That's a, <laughs> I not heard that variation before. Yeah. And the thing about all of the king's cakes that I found really fascinating is that depending upon if there's two and you have the one in Spain, that when you get that prize that's inside of it, you get to be a king for the day. And probably goes back to the tradition of the Lord of Misrule which is a very fun tradition that kind of is like the opposites day. So a peasant mm -hmm. would get to act as the king for the day. Whatever he did would be considered edict for that day. Mm -hmm. That's just really interesting because, you know, this idea that you can not divine something out of what you get in a cake. That's not like that. It's not witchcraft. Right per se, but there was such a frowning upon any effort to determine a destiny other than the one that you were assigned at birth. Right. So I can imagine how that would have been even more powerful. Please continue. Lord of Misrule. There is one in Mexico that is called Rosca de Reyes. This one's actually eaten on January 6th. It's more oval, but it still has that circular shape. There is mm. a doll in it. And this is my favorite part. On this day, they also serve tamales. There are several in France, but the one that I wanted to talk about is called the Galette de Ra, which mm -hmm. means of the king. And this one is more, it's more like a pie. It has a very flaky pastry crust frangipani? with frangipani in it. Yes. Which is a combination of pastry cream and almond cream. And it also has a porcelain figure in it. It's called La Fava. And when you win it, back to that luck, you get to don the paper crown. You get to be the king for the day. I want to be king for a Me day. Me too. There is another one that is typical in Portugal. There are very different versions of this, but this one tends to be a little bit more elongated 
It it resembles more of a fruitcake. It has lots of dried fruits and candies on it that decorate it. And this one has a fava bean put into it. This one also seems a little bit less fortunate, but maybe it is fortunate. I don't know. But whoever finds this one has to buy the next year's cake. Maybe that's a privilege. Maybe oh. it is a privilege to be able Ooh, to I provide the cake oh, the next yeah. year. I love the idea that it not being an onerous, that it being a thing of mm-hmm. honor to be able to provide this cake. It's luck. It's random. It's, and I don't know, I've, I've heard about these cakes my entire life, not in any traditional sense, obviously. My family is fairly new to the United States. And while a lot of these king cakes do come from other countries, I can't say that there's if there is a correlating thing in South Africa, I'm not aware of it. To me, Mardi Gras was always very correlated with the American South. Being on the West Coast in California, sometimes the rest of the country can feel very exotic and very far away and very foreign. I think that's one of the cool things about our country, but also one of the just weird things, mm-hmm. too, because we are the United States. So that brings us to Louisiana and the king cake that we, you and I know here in the States. And the one thing that I found really fascinating about this cake is that it has specific colors that you decorate it with. You decorate it with purple for justice, green for faith, and gold for power. Those are the official colors of Mardi Gras. I wasn't able to find anything that specifically said where these colors came from. But just a little bit ago, we were talking about the power of being the king for the day. So I'm wondering Mm -hmm. if the gold represents that power. Faith, obviously, Mm -hmm. this is a faith-based celebration. Justice, any idea where justice came from for this celebration? Actually, yeah, I do have some ideas as to why purple might be signifying justice. And it has to do with the the time of year and where we're at in this pageantry of religion. Because Shrovetide, which is that four-day period concluding with Shrove Tuesday, is a time of having a moment in the year where you repent, where you confess and you atone, really does speak to that sense of justice. And, and and I believe that the vestments worn during Shrovetide are purple. Mm-hmm. So that would also lend credence to, to purple being a official Mardi Gras color. That's my sense of it. So let me tell you a little bit about what I discovered about Shrove Tuesday, a.k.a. Pancake oh. Day, <laughs> which sounds like the best it day does, ever. doesn't it? So when I started pulling together my research and my notes, a phrase that I kept encountering specifically in regard to the, the more demure Shrove Tuesday, as opposed to the kind of the wild connotations I think that we have, especially in the United States, about Mardi Gras with a lot of alcohol mm-hmm. and a lot of nudity and the beads are tossed around and it's this sort of Bacchanalian right. day, right? Shrove Tuesday has just the slightest more demure connotation to it. But the question kept coming up is, what's the deal with these pancakes? As we touched on in our Super Bowl episode, and as as you have reminded us as well, Lent is a Christian tradition, a 40-day period of fasting, prayer, repentance, getting ready for Mm -hmm. Easter. Lent period is going to start this year on February 17th, so after the Super Bowl, and it concludes on Holy Thursday. So this period is preceded by Shrove Tide, and as I said, that's a four-day period. It's meant for contemplation, confession, and ultimately atonement. You shrive, which is literally getting repentance, and that's where Shrove Tuesday gets its moniker. 
act of confessing, atoning for the sins of the previous year. So you want to get all that negativity off of you before we start a new year with the Easter and what Easter represents. So for many faithful people, this is the last hurrah, as you Mm -hmm. said, before a period of austerity and solemnity. Fasting doesn't start until Ash Wednesday. So truly, you have to like midnight to like really go for it. And I'm so sorry to be vague here, but there are so many variations on church canonical law about which foods are restricted. I have not really been able to pinpoint an absolute rule and when that rule started, but suffice it to say that for a majority of time, Christian faithful were meant to abstain from meat or the products of animals during Lent. And the products of animals includes milk, therefore butter, and eggs. And there was enough of a taboo about eating these foods that it made a truly lasting impression on food history. Namely, like, what do you do with your milk and eggs when you're faced with a 40-day window of prohibition? If you can't eat them, all that stuff's going to sour and go bad. And as you point out, you might not even really have it to begin right. with. Because <laughs> that's this is not a very fruitful time of year. But there was a, this sort of tradition about making and eating pancakes that is rooted at this moment in the year. The tradition of eating like shriving cakes really spread around the world with the spread of Christianity. A date I've heard regarding this is 461 AD. And these shriving pancakes were commonly a thin, flat cake, and they're not the puffy, fluffy buttermilk pancakes that we might be thinking of in the United States. And as we've been talking about lately on As We Eat, there is meaning ascribed to these ingredients, especially for the ancient pancake. Eggs symbolizing rebirth, milk symbolizing innocence, and wheat being the staff of life. By the 13th century, Shrove Thai pancake feasts were traditional in Britain, Germany, and Scandinavia. Charles Panati's Extraordinary Origins of Everyday Things cites this lovely little ditty written for Shrovetide. Shrove Tuesday, Shrove Tuesday, for Jack went to plow. His mother made pancakes. She scarcely knew how. I found this stanza from Pasquil's Palinodia and his progress to the tavern, where after the survey of the cellar, you are presented with a pleasant pint of poetical sherry. Written in 1619, he's got this little section about pancakes that goes, It was the day whereon both rich and poor are chiefly feasted with the selfsame dish, when every paunch till it can hold no more is fritter filled as well as heart can wish, and every man and maid do take their turn and toss their pancakes up for fear they burn, and all the kitchen does with laughter found to see the pancakes fall upon the ground. So we're back to this kind of everybody's equal today. You know, that no matter rich nor poor, you're all eating the same food, too. I particularly like this cute line about every man and maid taking turns flipping pancakes for fear they burn. But really, it's the first part of it where the day whereon both rich and poor are chiefly feasted with the self-same dish. Yeah. And that there's an equality Mm -hmm. in that. When every punch till it can hold no more is fritter filled as well as heart can wish. So it's back to that bounty idea as well, where you eat until you are stuffed full of cakes, fritters, whatever it is that symbolizes the last of it. And the fasting, as you've also pointed out, wasn't exactly like you weren't eating at Mm -hmm. all. It was the notion, as I've been able to uncover so far, has been that you just ate significantly less than your usual share. So it would be like a plate of food and two small snacks. 
The Book of Common Prayer, St. Augustine's Prayer Book, defines fasting as usually meaning not more than a light breakfast, one full meal, one half meal on those 40 days of Lent. So it was, like you said, we're not starving ourselves, but we are certainly not eating the way that we're used to eating. Yeah. And the exceptions I thought were really interesting as well was children under the age of 14 are not included. Adults over the age of 59 (laughs) were not included. Anyone frail or of unsound mind, not included. Anyone upon whom fasting would be a hardship or difficulty were not included. Laborers upon whom needed basically to sustain strength in order to do their jobs, they were also excluded. This also has some connotations too about food as sustenance. Mm. I think there was concern from the Catholic Church, particularly about not making their lives harder than they needed to be. So when you're already hungry, having someone fast beyond basic sustenance would have been extraordinarily dangerous and harmful. Mm -hmm. And so I do appreciate that concern for the greater whole of the congregation or the greater whole of the people in the faith to not endanger the lives of those who could not fast. Over the years, the food component has been mixed with other things. Rather than fasting, you could do service. Rather than fasting, you could give money. That the, There was an idea that there were other ways you could honor the concept of sacrifice without actually having to give up, which can swing both ways. Right. right? You think about the history of buying indulgences. Right, exactly. And- <laughs> what all that entailed. I'm not saying it's always a good thing or a right thing, but this is the history of it. But I have a fun story for you about pancake races. This was actually a true delight to find out. On Shrove Tuesday, Anglo-Saxon Christians, and there's a reason for this, go to confession and are shriven or absolved from their sins. And historically, church bells would ring out to call people to confession. And this bell being rung specifically on Shrove Tuesday came to be called the pancake bell. As we've already laid out, lots of people eating pancakes. So pancake day, pancake bell. Only in Buckinghamshire, which is north-northwest of London, is home to perhaps the most famous pancake race in the world. And so the story goes that... Shrove Tuesday, 1445, a lovely lady that we're going to call Millicent because her real name has been lost to history, cooking up a batch of shriving pancakes when the pancake bell goes off. She doesn't want to be late to church because what would the other ladies say about Mm -hmm. that? So she grabs her head covering because she needs to have her head covered in church and takes off running for church with her skillet and apron, allegedly flipping pancakes the entire way. And thus was born this only tradition that has carried on for centuries, including the War of the Roses from 1455 to 1487. The idea is that you must be a housewife, or I think what they mean basically at this point is female, (laughs) wearing a head covering or a hat, you must be wearing an apron, and you run 415 yards precisely, carrying the skillet to the church door. And the prize for the first person to arrive is a kiss from the verger or the bell ringer for peace. There was a notable break from this tradition during World War II, lots of People had to do a lot of different things, but it was revived in 1948 by the Vicar of Olney, the Reverend Canon Ronald Cullen, and this is all according to Olney's Pancake Day website. In 1950, R.J. Leet, who was the president of the JCs in Liberal, Kansas, reads about the Olney Pancake Race. 
he calls up Reverend Collins or telegraphs or writes a letter and proposes a pancake race between the women of Liberal and the women of Olney. 70 years later, they're still doing this International Pancake Day, which in Liberal Kansas is a four-day event. So actually, ironically or not ironically, mirroring Shrovetide, featuring a parade, pancake flipping and eating contests, and of course, the pancake race. Now, as of 2020, Liberal has won the pancake race 39 times to only 29 times. And they had two races that didn't count, once because they had a timekeeping error and once because there was a media van blocking the church oh, door. Oh, media. I know, right? Those Dang it. Rasky television reporters. <laughs> I just love the idea that this tiny town in England and liberal Kansas, that they've got this pancake thing between them. I just love that. And that's been enduring for 70 years. Yeah. So pancake day. It was truly illuminating. You know, it's interesting because we always had a pancake breakfast and it was a fundraiser and it was always put on by the men, which I thought was really interesting. So when you started talking about the pancakes, it took me right back to pancake day at the church, which I would imagine that it has its roots in Shrove Tuesday. There's a major Canadian pancake thing where people in government come to serve pancakes it goes back to that the opposite day, right? Flipping flipping yes. power on its head, where again at the church the men were making and serving the pancakes. So we have the mm. traditional roles being reversed. And yeah, and if they have this thing in Canada, I would imagine it's the same thing where you're role reversing and I love that. I think that's pretty cool. Yeah. And the all-inness of it. I love this idea that a community will come out for some of the most humble mm. foods too. So next time I eat a pancake, I'm going to actually will be thinking about this idea of, you know, the component parts and what they represent and what they represent as I eat them, as I consume them. What am I inviting into my life with this food? I'm actually, I'm all about pancakes, right? Like I'm actually going to go whip up a batch, got some bacon for, for luck, pork for progress. And I think I'm going to hook myself up with a tasty brunch. I think that sounds delicious. I was actually thinking about making a king's cake, but now that we've talked about the pancakes, I I think I'm going to go with pancakes as well. Well, just put a little crown in one of your pancakes and that somebody gets to be pancake king for the day. Pancake king for the day. Love it. (laughs) But before we turn power on its head, what can our listeners expect for our next little food adventure? On our next adventure, we are going to explore the Jewish holiday of Purim. There is much to talk about with this holiday. Much storytelling, too. Stay tuned. For more information about today's episode, check out our website at asweeat.com. Follow us on Instagram at asweeat and join our new As We Eat community on Facebook. And so you don't miss an episode, subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. It would make us super happy if you would share this with a friend and review it and rate it. Five stars, please. And one more thing, we'll be publishing the As We Eat Journal, a companion publication to the podcast. We'll take you behind the scenes, dig deeper into food lore and history, share recipes and amazing photos, and so much more. Make sure to sign up on the website for updates. Oh, and one more thing. We also have a Patreon page where you can support us by becoming a patron. We've created an exclusive podcast for our patrons called Recipe Box Roulette. 
We think you're really going to love it. You've been listening to As We Eat, a multimedia project recorded and produced by Leigh Olson and Kim Baker. Obviously. <laughs> <laughs>